Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluative UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Mikkel Mikkelsen. Mikkel is a product manager and lead UX designer at Systime Solutions, a division of Gulendale, Scandinavia's largest publisher. At Systime Solutions, Mikkel is helping the company to design and launch a next-generation handheld interactive platform. Called The Internet Book, the product aims to revolutionize the way that secondary school students in Denmark interact with learning materials. Before Systime, Mikkel was the chief UX designer at Danske Bank, the largest bank in Denmark with assets totaling 600 billion. The bank employs 23,000 people and also has 3.3 million customers. There, Mikkel was instrumental in the design of customer-facing solutions, including e-banking, mobile banking, and Danske ID. Mikkel has also held other senior design roles, such as the head of UX at Whiteaway Group, one of the largest e-commerce businesses in Denmark, as well as the lead UX designer at eBay Scandinavia. But it was Mikkel's work at Systematic, a provider of mission-critical technology solutions that really caught my attention. During his nearly eight years at Systematic, Mikkel designed some of the critical systems within Lockheed Martin's F-35 fighter jet, as well as other defense and healthcare-based experiences. Needless to say, there is plenty to explore there. So, on that note, it is my pleasure to welcome Mikkel here to speak with me on Brave UX today. Mikkel, go often. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. Nice to be here. Very nice to have you here. And as we were discussing, Mikkel, before we hit record, we are literally on the opposite side of the globe from one another. And that's reflected in my time and the time zone as well, right? So it's quite late there for you and quite relatively early here for me. So we will see how we go. Hopefully we can all stay awake for this conversation. I'm sure we will. Now, I understand you live in a area of Denmark in a city called Aarhus, which is the second largest city in Denmark behind Copenhagen. And it's also a, um, a sea-based city, a city, a seaside city like Auckland, where I live. Can you just paint us a little bit of a picture of what life is like there? You know, how does it compare to, say, some of the other large European cities that listeners may be familiar with, you know, like London or Paris or an American city like San Francisco? Well, I would say that Aarhus is a pretty small city compared to the large one you, you just mentioned. But, you know, Scandinavia is a small country. We're about 6 million inhabitants here and part of a group of Scandinavian countries in the in the Nordic. So, yeah, it's just, um, you know, the social welfare states here and um, a lot of nice benefits of, you know, living in this part of the world. I'm very, I feel very blessed and privileged to to live in Denmark and, but also to have traveled and and lived abroad. I lived in France for three years and worked on banking systems there. And I also worked in US on various projects. So 
Yeah, I love traveling. So, and I can tell you that if you take, uh, if you drill a hole through the entire center of the earth from Aarhus, you will actually end up 400 kilometers uh, from the coast of New Zealand. So I'm actually on the very opposite side of the globe from you. <laughs> well, I, I'd say start digging, but I'm not sure that would would be very good for the for the planet. And it sounds like you are in a beautiful place. I did have a look at some of the photos of Aarhus when I was preparing for today, and it um, it does look like a, a wonderful place to visit. And like you say, a lot smaller than some of those bigger cities that I mentioned. Now, thinking about travel as well, like I noticed in your bio, and it's not uncommon for people in Scandinavia, as far as I can tell, to have excellent English. And to travel, I think you have also six languages that you have some proficiency in. Now, how has the uh, traveling aspect of what you've done in your career and your ability to interact with people in their language, how has that helped you to develop as a designer? Well, I would say that it was mostly a personal interest of mine to move to France, but so that was a learning experience that I just had to do. I, I loved the language when I was in high school. And I had to go there to, mm -hmm. to really learn it. It was a great experience. But, you know, learning English is very natural. It comes very natural to, to Scandinavians. When I was 19, I, I was in San Francisco for a year. And I just got the taste of the, the expat life. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I would say that it's pretty normal for us here to, to speak in English terms. And especially in IT, in technology space to, to, to speak in English terms. So I think most people are, are just comfortable, you know, speaking about technology in those terms. I might come mm. to come to short in, in some terms of the language, but yeah. I was just going to say, I think your English is far superior to my Danish, so I, I don't think we're going to have any, any troubles there. In fact, I'm mildly jealous that I can only have uh, command of one language. So I think it's... Uh, it's wonderful that you're able to ha have such a, a good engagement with so many people around the world. Obviously, it's um, served you really well. No, I just wanted to say that it's pretty typical for smaller countries to be more proficient in, in other languages. They just simply have to yeah. due to, you know, the fact that they trade with other countries and stuff like that, whereas the bigger countries don't need it as much. They're more self-containing. Uh, yes, that's a very good point. I just want to come back to your entry into the field of UX now, I understand that you actually became a, a UXer before we even called the field UX. You studied a Master of HCI, Human Computer Interaction, in the mid-90s at Aarhus University. I think you graduated in 97. What was it about the field at the time that originally attracted you? And what has kept you practicing 25 years later? Well, as you when, when you went through my bio there, I think you answered the question yourself. When when you have a career in, in technology and especially in in design, you know, in interaction design in, in the space of UX, you just have so many possibilities to work in different domains. Mm. And when I was uh, recommended the studies of information science and, and uh, interaction design studies, I just, uh, I was recommended it because of that width that it provides this field that you can practically do anything. You can work on your own, you can work as a consultant, you can work for many, all, all industrial areas of life, all entrepreneurial areas of life. You, you can engage in with, uh, with technology as a program, as a developer, but also as a designer, you can go almost anywhere. And that was what attracted me to the, to this area. And also what, what's kept me there, I guess this, um, you're never stuck. 
Mm. You can always go it's somewhere like else and yeah, explore other domains. Mm. And as you mentioned yourself, I transitioned from banking to, to publishing, which is not a problem because the UX is basically the same. It's not all the same, but the core part of UX is the same, no matter the domain. And that's what I like about it. You can transfer to a new domain. Of course, you have a learning curve to, to understand the domain. You need experts in the field to help you out. But, but mm. uh, the UX stays basically the same. The toolbox is the same when you go in the door. You mentioned when you were explaining how you came to study HCI that it was recommended to you. Was there someone in particular that recommended it that stands out as that person that introduced you to the field? Yeah, there was a, a lady called uh, Carolina Subo. She's actually become a founder of uh, a couple of uh, IT projects and, and uh, one of the first interactive agencies in Denmark. So I met her by chance and she commended it to me. So, yeah. Oh, well, we have her to thank for you being on the show today, which is which is great. Now, I also was looking, as you know, as I go back and sort of get a sense for my guests where you'd worked. And I mentioned in your introduction that you had worked at uh, Systematic for the better part of a decade designing mission-critical systems yeah. in part for that F30, F-35 fighter jet, which is an amazing piece of technology. And I understand you were also designing mission planning systems for land-based military vehicles, as well as some systems for national intelligence services. Yeah. First question, and it's a very important one, did you get to fly in an F-35? No, I didn't. Oh. Do you regret not getting to fly in an F-35? But I have some funny war stories about the F-35, but it, I didn't I didn't ever see one. But I mm -hmm. sat next to, when I was in the introductory program at Lockheed Martin, which is, you know, production plant with, with about, you know, 20, 30,000 employees. You sat next to other people in the plant. And uh, I sat next to a guy who, who was designing the, no, he was a purchaser for nose cone technology. And that's mm -hmm. a funny story because normally you say that it, it costs the tip of a, it will cost you the, the tip of a jet fighter because, you know, it's very expensive, the, st the stuff in the tip of a jet fighter. He actually knew he was in the purchasing department for tips of jet fighters. <laughs> so he knows the cost of the tip <laughs> of a jet fighter. He's one of the ones that originated that joke, and it literally is not a joke. It's quite literal. <laughs> True story, but yeah. No, but I, I work with pilots on the program. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, thinking about working at Systematic, when you, when you first started there, you know, we talked about your introduction to the field doing your master's, you know, was this always part of the plan? You know, was this a place or a area of the field that you had always wanted to work in? You mean military? Yeah. I actually had a, I had a, when I was a kid, I had, you know, I had dreams about aviation becoming, you know, air traffic controller sitting, sitting in front of the screens and and stuff like that. But I decided for information technology because you have much, much more possibilities. But no, I didn't plan for it. But when I heard about the, the contract for the F-35, I actually pursued the job because of that. So I went on on a mission to to get a job within that company to get to work for that particular piece of technology. Well, that sounds like there's a story there. How did you go about pursuing that opportunity? Was it sort of like, a, I'll pitch a tent outside the company's office until they give me a job or how did it go? No, I was living in France and, um, and this was in, I think, 2004. And I read mm. a newspaper article 
that Systematic had acquired the contract for the F-35 for software, some part of the contract, not, a, not all. And uh, I said, okay, if, if something, I've, if I should ever work on something cool, it would be to work on UX for the F-35. So I thought, okay, I'll, I'll do everything I can to get that on my top one of uh, new companies to, to get out to. And then I knew a guy who knew a guy who knew the CEO through kindergarten. They delivered kits to the same kindergarten. So I got a note delivered there if he needed a skilled designer for his teams. <laughs> Real funny, but actually it worked. I got called in for meet and greet and it developed into to a job eventually. So Mikel, we've spoken a little bit about the term mission critical and a mission critical system, but we haven't actually really clarified or defined what that is for the people that are listening. What does that really mean? What is a mission critical system? Well, it's it's actually hard to define. You can you cannot really look it up in the Webster's dictionary and get a clear definition, especially when it comes to technology, because people will say that I have mission critical apps on my phone. Uh, so it's a mission critical to what? What mission? But typically, I define it in areas where the safety of human life is somehow directly or indirectly involved. That would be mission critical to me. So. I, I would say that it's a matter of definition, but it, it is at least it has to do with somehow the security and safety of human life is somehow involved within that system. So that, of course, also goes for systems in healthcare and stuff like that, but also in, in vehicles and transportation and stuff like that. Now, I watched a talk that you'd given a little while back at one of the IXDA conferences where you were discussing the design of mission critical systems. And in that talk, you remarked that major incidents often occur through a series of interrelated failures. And I'm just yeah. going to quote something that you said in that talk. Now you said that's where the responsibility of the interaction designer comes in. We can either be that person who starts the bad chain of events, or we can break that chain with a good design. So given the nature of your work at Systematic, did you wake up in the morning and have a real sense of the gravity of, of, the, of the work that you were doing and the impact both for good and for ill if there was a design problem in there that you were working on? Yes, of course, you, you, are, you are instantly aware that it has a high impact if you work on something that has relations to human life, as you would if you, for instance, designed an, an interface for, for medical purposes of administering drugs, for instance. If you administer 10 times the allowed amount, you might uh, create a disaster. So, yeah, so of course you're you're instantly aware that this is something of, of high importance. But, uh, yeah, it's just an interesting field to be in. And I, I really enjoyed working in that part of uh, UX design. It's something I did for about six, seven years working in military systems. And it's just, uh, it also gives you a high sense of reward. It's, it's re very rewarding to know that these systems help save lives in the field. And I have been directly told by soldiers that, that the way it was designed directly had an impact on saving lives. And that's maybe one of the most rewarding things you can hear as a designer. So I feel very privileged to be part of, uh, part of uh, designing systems and making a difference there. What was it like to receive that feedback? How did you feel when someone's sitting there telling you that you literally saved lives as a result of the work that you'd done? 
Well, it was just awesome. It's just awesome to hear that you make that kind of a difference. Um, I will never forget it. it because, you know, the, the soldiers that give their lives on the field down there to so so that just that just feel felt pretty awesome to to be part of that. I, I don't know how to put it. <laughs> well, I think I can I can hear it and and see it in your answer there that it made quite an impact. Now, there's also another side of design for military, design for defence, and not everyone listening to this episode would be comfortable, I suppose, deploying their design skills in that way. Um, you know, there are different views out there about the impact that design in that field can lead to. When you were applying for work at Systematic, did you have any reservations at all about the impact of your work as a designer? No, not in that sense. Of course, you are aware that you are you are transitioning into a field where the safety of human life is involved, and it's it's a matter of taking it very seriously. But I di- I didn't have any reservations. On the contrary, I actually wanted to to bring my design skills to work in an area where design is highly needed. Design is highly needed in in military to help save lives, in law enforcement, in national intelligence, in healthcare, uh, which is uh, typically understaffed in terms of UX. And you will see systems that actually have a higher degree of flaws and faults because of a lack of good design. So I think design is even more needed in those areas. And I felt inspired to go and make a difference there. And for those people that might look at the other side of saving lives, you know, in a conflict situation, you, which is unfortunate, but they do happen. And it is, it is a reality of, of life on this planet as humans. What do you say to those people that look at the the other impact of that work in that field and the ethical, if any, sort of considerations that came up or might come up for you? Like, do you have a, a sort of a, a way of framing that for them that might help them to better understand why you felt so called to this particular field of UX? You know, I can understand if people, you know, they they wouldn't choose that particular domain. I can, I can totally respect that. Uh, as long as they can respect that, I would, I would actually want to make a difference there for the better. So I think it's, I think it's, it's fine to have preferences within design. It's not an issue of either or black and white. I think it's, it's, it's fine to have preference there, but uh, it is very rewarding. It's very needed. Uh, design is very needed in those areas, and uh, I just, I just hope I can inspire more to to go there and join. It, it's really, it's, it's very interesting. It's a high, high reward. And I met many, many interesting HCI practitioners and usability professionals, uh, also at Lockheed Martin, who who worked in those fields. And um, yeah, I think they were there for a reason to make a difference. So, yeah, I think I mentioned to you that I was talking with uh, Dr. Laura Faulkner, um, who was on the show uh, a couple of months back, and she had also had worked in the UX of defense this time stateside and in Texas, and she had a sort of similar views about the real the real the realness i suppose the tangible realness of the outcome of hearing from your users in this case uh, people that work in the military on the front lines just how much of a difference the the design of the systems that you'd created made for them and did save lives and we often talk about making the world a better place and i suppose this is a bit of a a what's the right way to frame this is there a right way this is uh, this is a area of design where, like you've 
touched on, there are different views as to as to how people feel about it. And people feel particularly strongly about it, usually one way or another. But it is one of the areas of design that you can see an immediate impact of the work that you're doing. Now, I was curious, Mikkel, like how did your friends and family feel about the nature of your work on the F-35 and on these systems? You know, did it lead to any interesting dinnertime conversations? Well, I, I guess when you work on stuff like that, there's classified people just want to know what it's about, uh, it's, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. so that type of conversation, I think, you know, I think my family were proud that I was able to join such a special program. Uh, actually, what I worked on wasn't that secret as such. I, I can, I can, I can share what I worked on. Yeah, please. Uh, uh, but you might also go to my website, nilsmichel.com slash F35 and read an article I did in length about working there and and uh, what specifically I worked on. But, you know, uh, it has, of course, to do with onboard and offboard uh, systems on the plane. And, of course, the digital interfaces for that. For instance, I worked on on, uh, on a portable device that plugged into the fuselage on, upon landing doing diagnostics. What were you scanning for? Uh, faults and errors during flight. Okay. And such a diagnostic uh, tool would, would help... Uh, ensure the safety of the next flight, for instance. Right. So there are always that feedback loop sounds like it's really important and there are so many different interrelated systems from what it sounds like that you need to yeah. really make sure you're reporting the health or the, the sort of status of the fighter jet before it goes up again. Yeah. What's it like when you're trying to learn about the effectiveness of your design in a mission-critical system? And I don't imagine it's easy just to get aircraft technicians to come in for a day at, day at the lab somewhere like what did it look like how did you involve the user for lack of a better term the people that you were trying to design for how did you involve evolve involve them in the design process yeah well well as you know better than anybody else i guess is that we as ux designers have a you know wide toolbox of of things we can use depending on the closeness to the users we can employ different tools actually i was i was um, in the military context i was actually able to work very closely with domain experts that would be the end users of the technology and and that allowed me to you know to actually get direct feedback on on design from particular you know target users but it it's actually tip pretty difficult to get a hold of the end users in, in a normal scenario, you would have different layers of stakeholders between you and the users, and you couldn't just reach out and say, Hey, come in for a day at the lab. Uh, so of course you need to, you know, be careful with the design you do and, and how you verify it through, through different methods. And of course there's also less, you know, it, it's not exactly an agile process as such where you just do quick iterations over the table in a design sprint, you really need to, you know, work through requirement specifications and stuff like that uh, and, and slowly get designed to be part of the agenda. And actually I did that at the F-35. I worked to to enhance the value of the, the user interface specifications on the program. So I introduced some document artifacts that helped the entire uh, artifact structure for requirements to be, you know, more design centered. So it's a slow, long haul it's not just a quick iterative process when you work in 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 a in a big uh, company like that but it's very interesting i i really enjoyed that part to be part of a uh, a big machine in in terms of the, the role you can play 
I get the sense that the Silicon Valley move fast and break things, which has somewhat fallen from favor recently and potentially for very, very good reason, uh, doesn't really apply in a military context. No, it doesn't really work like that. It's, it's, a, it's a bit different there. Uh, you have typically big contracts with a high degree of specification of what exactly is to be built. And you need, to, of course, to imply, you know, work design into that agenda. And isn't that fascinating, though, because if you think about that, this machine is a machine that is going to be piloted by a person. And I, while I, you know, very generally get the sense that, you know, there's a lot of automation automation sitting in behind that to enable that person to function effectively under pressure. Uh, it's interesting that design is something that still needs to fight really hard to become more of a cent more center stage in the design decisions that are going into that piece of hardware. Yeah, but I can tell you that many of the aviation companies they have uh, pretty large design teams. For instance, on cockpit design, so it's it's pretty normal to have interaction design and and usability experts work on these systems. Now, I think over the last ten or fifteen years, it's been you you, you wouldn't ever think of designing a cockpit or or an automotive interface without having interaction and, and UX designers and digital designers on board such a project. Whereas, you know, 20 years ago, you would typically have mostly analog controls in, in a car. Today, you have so many digital systems, touchscreens, audio interfaces, many more things where UX and design skills are simply required for a successful, a successful experience. So you, it's not, so there's a positive development in that sense is that in, in many of these, because it's also mission critical to design for vehicles and, you know, designing even Apple CarPlay or Spotify for a car is actually somehow mission critical because you take away from the attention of the, of the driver to keep their eyes on the road. So, you know, this part of being mission critical really applies to a lot of areas and, and we can make a difference there. So, so I think uh, you wouldn't in your good mind, uh, design a system for a vehicle today without um, having a good designers on board such a team. Yeah, I was looking at some of the videos of the F-35 in flight, and there's obviously some very advanced technology in there. But to what you were saying, Mikel, there about the different modes of interaction mm -hmm. with the mm -hmm. system, you know, you, you touched on there, you've got your touch screens, which have become mainstream now, but you also looked like there was a gestural or gestural interface built in there. There was the ability, I believe, through the visor to see through the hard surfaces of yeah. around the cockpit so the pilot doesn't just look out the glass for people that are listening you can actually look straight down below you and the cameras on the on the jet will actually feed back to your helmet what it is that you can yeah. see so you've got real almost 360 degree ability to see what's going on and what also uh, audio commands like oh yeah yeah you know, called dvi direct voice input uh, systems in the in the cockpit to allow you to to imply voice commands to execute stuff during flight. So when you're going through the process of designing a mission critical system for this kind of context, whether it's the F-35 or whether it's healthcare or, or whether it's a land-based vehicle, I understand from what you've said that there is often a, a load of specification in terms of engineering yeah. specification and the outcome's pretty clear what you need to deliver. But it yeah. sounds like you've got a number of of different ways that the person can interact with the system to achieve whatever that outcome is. You know, how do you go about 
navigating what mode to use and the different constraints that may sit around the design of that system, like what's factoring into your decisions here, your design decisions. What do we mean mode? So whether or not like you are designing that system to be uh, an, an auditory system or whether it's so an alarm or whether it's something that's going to be touchscreen, like w what are the decisions that go into determining what mode the interaction should be? Well, I would say the project I've been on hasn't been that unclear. You, you typically know more or less specifically what you're going to be working on. Let's say you're going to be working on on a fixed touchscreen display inside a vehicle that does so-and-so. So, -and -so. so, so the constraint know, is known. Yeah, yeah the constraint is, is pretty much known. You know what information flows into that system. And then you just do what any UX designer does. You try to understand the use cases, the user stories around those use cases, which are more important, which conflict with which, what are the priorities and needs and goals of the user try to empathize with the user in that respect. In that respect, you know, the Forrester Triangle with, you know, designing a system with both, uh, you know, engagement and, and, um, and, and usability and usefulness and employ all three areas of the, of the design to, to meet those use cases for the optimal design. So I think it's not that actually that, that much different. And I was, uh, you know, the, the, the difference when transitioning into a domain like that is understanding the domain. You don't know anything about aviation. Actually, I took classes in cockpit uh, design and, uh, you know, I tried to fly flight simulators to just get a feel for the, you know, domain. But you still need domain experts around you. Like you would if you designed for medical context, you, you need a doctor around you who does the actual surgery. You can never become the surgeon. But if you're designing a system for him or her, you really need to. To, to understand the context and the use case. And for that, you need the expert that has, you know, many years of experience uh, in the field to help you out. So uh, typically in those uh, high knowledge areas, also in banking and finance, you need the domain experts next to you to, to help you understand the use case. But besides that, you just employ the normal uh, toolbox of UX design to, to you know, better the design through iterative design prototypes and all that stuff to, to show to stakeholders and, and improve the, the communication around the final solution. When you do these iterative design processes, sometimes you're lucky you can actually, you know, improve the requirement set a bit and say, okay, but you have, you have so-and-so use case. Couldn't you do it this way? Couldn't you, for instance, I came up with a design for these uh, military land vehicles where they could, I knew you could transmit information. I said, well, couldn't they draw drawings to each other? Because they're typically in the desert. They don't have uh, any maps there with roads. So couldn't they draw up their own roads and say, okay, let's go this way and that way and, and submit those drawings in, in, instead of textual messages and, and other stuff that goes through such a system. And, and I was actually able to, to add you know, features to, to the design within the constraints of the system so you, you can sometimes be lucky and hit a gem and actually make something new that they didn't think of. So it, it, it depends a little bit, but it's typically a high constrained environment where you need, where you know exactly what you need to do. And then within those yeah. constraints, you have some liberties, of course. And you know, I think any designer that's operated in an environment where there's literally a blank canvas that can actually be more restrictive or, yeah. and less helpful to furthering design than actually having a really clearly defined set of of constraints and outcomes that you can innovate within. I just want to come back to what you were talking there, Mikkel, about the 
the role of the domain expert, understanding the use case and the human side of the systems that you were designing. You, I think you sort of used a great illustration there of being able to evolve the way in which the people in the land-based vehicles communicated where they wanted to go through drawing as opposed through text. Yeah. Now you've said in the past that, and I'm going to quote you now, users can be highly unpredictable when subjected to high-stress environments. Yeah, And I imagine in a military context that high-stress environments are under fire situations and the cost of making a mistake in those situations can be extremely high. Um, it's never a high price to pay than loss of life. How do you accommodate for that unpredictability during the design of a mission-critical system? How do you get a real feel for or know for certain that you've covered off the range of responses that might come up in a highly intense situation like an under fire situation? That's a good question. The accurateness of design, it needs to be there whatever you design. Of course, you need to make sure that the error margins are less in terms of bad things that are able to happen if the user doesn't perform what they're supposed to do. Like you would with a GPS system, you would want to direct the user and not have them, you know, drive off the road at some point. So of course you need to know what are the limits within the user where which in which the user can act safely and not cause harm to themselves or others. So these are some constraints you need to know. You need to lay down these constraints and say, okay, I need to make absolutely sure that the user cannot go into these areas of um, insecurity where, where, where their safety is concerned. And so what those constraints might be depends, of course, entirely on the design you're making. You need to you know, draw up those limitations and say, okay, I, I need to make sure that the user cannot wander off into these that doesn't mean that the user cannot cannot make an error with your design your or the system in such. It's not your design, it's the system itself. Any system that allows for human input can somehow be, you know, misused by the person using it. And that is what is so exciting about designing for these safety critical systems, these mission critical systems. And they come in all shapes or forms, you can be designing, you know, industrial interfaces for electricity or who knows what, elevators, vehicles, aviation, military, law enforcement, and all of this, the safety of human life is involved. And um, and I think many times in these systems, it's actually the, the designer's uh, responsibility to add safety to a system that is inherently dangerous. So again, I think, um, so that's why I'm saying that I'm pretty unapologetic about working in the military context because we are pushing something that actually has an inherently dangerous nature and pushing it in a more human and safe direction because of this error handling capacity of good design. Whereas, you know, the lack of the same thing would actually make a system you know, more dangerous if you didn't have a good designer for a car or you didn't have so-and-so for, for this uh, interface, it would actually be, you know, more dangerous, less effective. For the operators. Yeah, for the operators, exactly. So I think it's just, uh, you know, it's, a, it's an important challenge. It's a good challenge to be in that safe of actually enhancing the safety of a system.
I was going to say, I've heard you speak before about, I believe, about the role of redundant systems within these designs and also the role of alarms and other things that are not necessarily yeah. part of mainstream UX design uh, as a way of, I suppose, ensuring greater safety in the operation of the of the primary system. You know, what's an example uh, that you can give us of how you've deployed alarms or, or, or supplementary um, redundant systems in order to bring that user back on to the safer track? Well, the first I would say is that some of the interaction design basics really come into play when you design, you know, safety critical systems. You, you need to go back to the basics of, of all the good heuristics you learned back in school about Hicks law, Fitch law, you know, Gestalt principles, all those sorts of heuristics, you really need to know them by heart because they will be there to in, ensure a, a better, you know, core usability of the system. And I just think that those are some of the basics that needs to be employed there. Of course, there are some things you would do that are maybe different in, in some of these mission critical contexts with redundant systems, you know, really ensuring that the user doesn't, uh, doesn't make errors, that there's a high degree of forgiveness within the system. Another thing that you will- Tell me about that. You say a high degree of forgiveness. What does that, what does that mean? It means that you can, you can undo action or forgiveness is one of the key, you know, key, uh, key UX principles, uh, one of the golden principles, I think of Schneiderman, and uh, that you're able to return from an undo actions that you've, you've performed and actually ret retrieve from that and, and, and go to do something else and to, to answer your, your previous question about high stress environments, it's also of course needed there that needs to be forgiveness in the system that allows you to, to retract actions and, and do them otherwise in a new way if, if, if you didn't perform it correctly on the first take. I understand. Mikkel, it's been a decade or more since you left Systematic. How do you feel about that work that you did now? And why did you move on from the work in mission critical systems there? Well, actually, one of the things I missed when I worked in, in these more classified areas of, of national intelligence and military was a closer relationship with the users. So when I got to work on, you know, you could say public systems, I worked for eBay after that, that was the desire to move very close to the user and, 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 and work in a more agile environment because, you know, the, this domain is, is a bit, it's not the most agile environment in the world. And I really missed that close contact with the, end users and maybe also to be able to uh, speak to end users without having to know their entire uh, roster of uh, education and, and understanding their domain as such, you know, be one of the users myself. When you're at eBay, you, you just inherently understand what, what the technology is about and you can actually employ uh, people around you for, for understanding good design instead of having to have an expert per se next to you. So I, I really wanted to move into other areas of design after having worked on the nerdy stuff for so many years. Uh, and that's why I moved into e-commerce, which was just great. I, I, I loved being there too. So it's, of course, it's a, an interesting part of my, of my bio that I was in the military and worked on, on those systems. But um, I also enjoyed working on other stuff that is more public. And now I worked on, on learning system actually going back a bit to my, my master's degree with which quite academic. So, 
So now I work on didactic stuff in, in, in the schools and how interactive technologies can help uh, children learn. So that's just another part of the UX toolbox that I'm, I'm happy to use now. So getting close to the users, I think, was one of the reasons I moved on to, to get you know, more normal users, so to speak. Makes a lot of sense. I get a real sense from listening to you talk about your work as well, and also where you where you're where you're currently working in terms of the the internet book that you're working on, uh, in the education context. That impact of your work is quite important to you. Yeah, I think it I think it matters to most designers that they 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 feel they make a difference somehow. One of the things we know in in learning in schools is that the pupils are starting to more and more transition into digital books. And, and it's really important that these digital books are able to transmit the material in a, in a just as good way as would a paper book. And there is this trend and this tendency to, for, for, for pupils to lose, lose concentration when they have, uh, when they're using digital media. And it's a very, very exciting challenge to design uh, a media that keeps the user attention and the user learning to the content for as long as possible without having them to flicker off into other areas of their computer. I was going to say that's a really interesting area of UX to work in. And I, I want to come to internet book and some of the constraints around that. And, you know, like we've talked about with pupils, uh, students uh, losing concentration. Like I think that's a really fascinating area of design. Just before yeah. we move off the, the subject of mission critical systems, I wanted to, I suppose, get a sense from you that, while most of the people that are going to be listening to this episode won't and probably will not in their career work in a organization that focuses on the design of those mission critical systems, we're seeing more and more now that a lot of the work that we or products that we do work on uh, do have a impact on the quality of life and lives of our users. So there's still a an ability for our work to have unintended consequences. And I think we've seen some of this play out in the media recently, particularly around social platforms. What responsibility, if any, do you believe that we have as UX practitioners to our users as far as quality of life goes, as far as the, our impact that we have on their ability to live a, a successful and happy life? Mm. I, I don't think we are the good makers as designers. I don't think we have a responsibility as such to be the saviors of the world. I think we are part of uh, whatever company we are part of, improving the the conditions of the humans that that use these systems. I, I totally agree with that. But but I don't I kid myself saying that you know we as designers are the ones that save everything from you know falling apart. So I'm not in that boat at all. I think we should go work in a soup kitchen if we really wanted to make a difference. We shouldn't be, you know, pretentious and think that design is, you know, really the uh, the, the changer of the world. I was just uh, blessed and privileged to work on something such a, as special as that, which was my dream and I, I, I tried it out. But I think many of us designers, we have different dreams and aspirations and um, want to make a difference in those areas in our way, the best we can through a team you know, people have to build the stuff that we're designing. They they perform the same role, the same responsibility as us, the product managers that set up the requirements, the businesses that fund it, the users that use it have the responsibility for first and foremost. So I think we're just a part of the ecosystem of people that, you know, share that, uh, that ability to, you could say, make a difference. 
with with digital systems that are just become such a natural part of life. Uh, what what I am excited about though is that I think that UX design in that ecosystem is a force for good. It really does make a difference if you make good design. Things will work better. They will work work more accurately. They will be more safe. They will be more content users. It will improve the quality of life. You know, uh, the human condition will actually be bettered if if you know you are actually at least pushing it in a good direction with what you do as a designer. So I'm pretty content about that, but I'm not fooling myself telling me that, you know, we are saviors of the world in that sense. But it's still, I think it's a, it's it's good to be in, uh, UX design is an interesting field. I think that's why many practitioners stay in the field is because we can actually, we feel that when we enter a project and we look at, you know, things and we try to understand the users we can see okay there's actually areas of improvement here i can actually i can i am able to push some of these bricks in a good direction if i do some stuff here and work with other people you know to to make these things um, slightly different yeah so it sounds like what you're saying is that you believe that design can have a positive impact in the world but that the the context and the degree of that impact is somewhat limited by our sphere of influence within the organizations in which we work yeah, of course. Well, so let's come back to um, Gulendale and your work there at Systime Solutions on the internet book before I segue us there to, to sort of get into some, uh, I suppose, a, a bigger sort of meta level conversation. You're a product manager and a lead UX. And to me, thinking about those two roles, they're both large roles. What does that look like in practice? Like, do you have to wear different hats on different days or during the same day, just to sort of reframe the, the sort of the role that you're, you're trying to play across those two very different roles, but related roles? Yeah, well, I work in a very small team now and I actually do have two hats that I wear. Uh, I actually also have a, a very skilled UX designer working next to me to take part of the UX work array from my shoulder. So, but as you might know, it's a very natural for UX designers, especially senior UX designers to gravitate toward product management because you, you start to kind of interest yourself in, okay, how can I shape the overall requirements to make this product fit, you know, the use case, the business case, the best possible way and not be too nitty gritty about, you know, aligning boxes anymore. So, so I think I also transitioned towards product management because I wanted to, you know, make that difference to actually shape the product from that user experience point of view. And then I was just asked to take on that hat within the project, which I did, which was to basically manage the roadmap and the, especially the initial design process of gathering requirements and understanding the user needs and then starting a design iterative design process of the next generation of this platform that we are currently uh, building. Yeah, I understand that the platform, it already exists in a, a sort of a web-based interface, but you're yeah. actually taking it into a, a form factor, a physical form factor. What I think you kind of touched on it as well before I, I segued us earlier, but what is special about internet book? You know, what is the, the value that you're trying to unlock for students through this product? Well, as opposed to, you know, when you read a typical ebook, you are basically just browsing pages in a PDF. 
the product that we are building has the interactive element to it that allows you to build in components to make that book more interactive. Not just a reading experience, but also a learning experience. That could be interactive exercises, quizzes, those type of uh, elements that integrate together with the, uh, with the content. Other parts, other parts of the interactive content could be, you know, interactive diagrams. It could be, you know, uh, videos, sound files, all multimedia elements that you will not find in the PDF, typically, at least. You have to link to it to go. But this is a contained, it's actually still a web app. We're building a web app for it and not a native app. We're building a web app for it and uh, just employing all the possibility of, uh, of HTML to, to build, you know, the next generation of that reading and learning experience that has so many possibilities when you move outside of that static reading that's in a Kindle, that's in an, an ebook, right? So that's basically what we do. We try to enhance the interactive element of that reading experience to, to better learning of, of uh, high school subjects such as um, math and physics and chemistry and languages and all that stuff. That's I could have done with this product when I was going through high school, particularly when it came to, to maths. Yeah. Anything to have made that more interactive uh, for me would have probably served me much better than, than what I ended up, how I ended up performing. And just to be, just an, ex an example, if, if you had been able to read your high school books in a multimedia format, maybe seeing some parts of it explained on video, maybe be, being able to hear accents in a language, uh, in a sound file, as opposed to hearing your, your teacher pronounce everything, you know, just the simplicity of multimedia elements, which is, uh, of course, a very simple thing actually helps to enhance that learning experience. So it doesn't need to be interactive, just multimedia itself actually enhances the material. Yeah, I think, look, anything that can spark learning as opposed to conformity in education is a positive thing. And it sounds like this product is going some way to making that a possibility for more students. And you touch on a few different aspects of the product. There's the web app, which enables the content. There's the content itself. And there's also the physical device that I assume that you're, you've got industrial designers working on. Like in terms of your role, what is the, the breadth of your product management and design expertise? Like how is that being applied across those three contexts of content the physical device and the the actual um, inter interface that you're designing to house that content. Content. Well, what what we did was we, we started by looking at all the pain points and all the current wishes and ideas of the users during many many years of use. We have a five digit number of emails from users feeding back about the quality of the product, and we took that and shaped it into, a, you could say, a picture of the requirements we needed to fulfill, a picture of the use cases, the overall use cases we needed to fulfill. And from that, we started to, to shape clusters of functionality that needed to be designed and grouped together. And then on top of that, we needed to build a design system for that content. And that was actually the biggest challenges that we needed to build a highly flexible design system on top of all that content that allowed the different publishing houses to customize the individual books in a way that made each publication unique while at the same time having 
one product that always feels the same product when you're moving from book to book. That yeah, so the user doesn't the, have to learn a new interface for every different title that they're trying to interact with. Exactly. You know, you move off a learning curve using this web app, and it's very important that when you jump from your chemistry book to your biology book, that you're not on a new learning curve, but you actually just seamlessly jump to another publications and you know that web app by heart and the basic haven't changed, maybe just the content and parts of the design system has changed. So this was kind of a, you know, a layered approach to the design system where we needed to have recognizability always present in the, in the product itself, but also the uniqueness of the product. And actually, what we also wanted to build on top of that uniqueness was a personality aspect to it where the user could customize this uh, publication to their own needs and adding content and drawing, you know, on the content itself like you would in a physical book to add that personal aspect to the, to the digital publication. And that's actually one of the most exciting experts of that uh, aspects of that technology was that we, we wanted to imply that uh, personal aspect to the technology. Uh, on top of the the two that I mentioned. I feel like it's a fairly universal behavior for teenagers to want to draw on top of their textbooks. So it's it's good to see that you're trying to accommodate some of that self-expression within the product. Yeah, and, and teenagers are, and stuff like that, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, look, teenagers are, let's be honest, they're tricky. I don't think, if I reflect back on my teenage years, I definitely, there were some tricky periods there for, for my mum. How do you, how do you design for this very tricky group of people and what does success look like like do you have a north star for the product that you'll know for certain you're achieving when it's in the hands of these students well actually what was interesting in designing this product it was the first product that i ever designed where the users were forced to use the product you know when you go into <laughs> a high school class you you are not given the selection between this and that you are you were told that the chemist, this is your chemistry book. You're supposed to read it. So within that context, we knew that the users just had to use our product. They had to finish their exams. They had to perform well through our product, no matter how well we designed it or not. That was a pretty special, you know, requirement to be really respectful of the fact that the users didn't choose that interface themselves. They were kind of told to use it, right? So that made it more more sort of the teacher's product than the pupil's product in that sense that the, the teachers were the ones recommending it uh, to, to you know, in the business context of, of selling this product, it would be the teachers that recommended it to, to other teachers saying, okay, you should uh, check this out. And, and, and that's what actually makes it a bit special. It's, it's the end users that has the pain or the gain of using it, but it's the, the, the teachers that that, you know, will recommend the product to others. So that's why the teaching aspect of the book really has to perform well. So there's also a, a resource or a, a material in the product that enables the teacher to teach the classes through the product? Yeah, there are some teacher functions as well, yes. Yeah, I see. I wonder what are the incentives at play within the Danish secondary school system for teachers you know are they incentivized on the basis of standardized tests and trying to increase the uh, the scores and performance of their students in that way um, it depends a little bit on the school but of course they typically classes are required to go through a certain teaching programs 
they have a certain agenda they need to move through, for instance, to cover chemistry at a certain level, at a certain uh, age in high school, they, they need to cover these books. So actually these books are pretty clearly laid out in terms of what they need to communicate in terms of the reading agenda. Uh, but but then comes the learning aspect. That, that's where it's much more flexible. Will the will the users actually pick up on those those uh, different items in 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 the agenda that they need to learn on? But it, it's pretty fixed what the NISA users need at, at least at a high school level. The 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 materials is is pretty pretty nicely laid out in terms of what they need to to learn. Of course, there are there are some metrics we have. Of course, we have grading if that's what you mean. Of students and stuff like that. But one of the things that we really wanted to do with this technology was to make something that was very accessible for a wide range of students, because we know that they read differently, they have different intention spans, and we really wanted to make something that, that covers all, all the students in the class, not just the well-performing students that are comfortable with technology, but also those with reading disabilities or or simply those with concentration issues, that we were able to 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 design a piece of technology that that cover the entire class, and that's also an advantage of an interactive uh, web app like that. You can really cover with different types of materials and different you know reading modes and stuff like that, uh, reading settings. You can really accommodate for for more users that you could with a normal book. So you're actually expanding the reach of the material with a good. Uh, interactive design in that sense, I think. That's also what triggered me to become product manager here because you could shape the product and the requirement set in a way that this product could really become a, a more powerful tool than it, it was today. You know, the previous generation just had 10 years anniversary and it was starting to become a little bit rusty around the edges. So it really needed a, a good redesign as well. I think 10 years is a bit too long if you ask me. So you might, you know, it was really needed to have a next generation of that product in the hands of the users because so much has happened in 10 years in web browsing, right? When is the next version of the internet book going to be available for students? We are aiming for a release uh, for next summer, the summer of 22. It's coming very soon. Mikael, yeah. look, I'm very mindful of time. I know it's getting late for you there, but I also um, know that you have a, a heart for it education, in particular, the education of UX and the introduction of people to the field. So I'd like to ask you yeah. briefly about that before we bring the show down to a close. You know, you are particularly passionate, as I mentioned, about introducing UX as a career path to high school, student, high school students. Why is this something that you feel compelled to do? Well, I just it's just become my impression that when we talk about information technology, to younger kids, we are really sharing design with them. We are, at least at least in Scandinavia, where I'm from, we, we are taught stuff in high school about information technology. We even call it information technology. And we are basically told that there are two paths you can take. You can either become kind of like a project manager or you can become a developer. Those are the two roles you can have in IT. And uh, you are not you're not uh, told about, you know, the area of user experience design, of experience design, interaction design, digital design, graphical skills, design skills in, in, in terms of uh, uh, digital technology. And I think it's just a pity. I think we should uh, 
inspire that curiosity to to make people move into design at a much earlier age than just having them be introduced to programming and project management in their IT classes at a young age. So, so yes, I'm very passionate about, you know, telling people about what a UX designer actually does at a very young age, as opposed to, I learned it when I was out of high school and starting to explore myself. And UX is something that you're introduced to when you are in technology already, maybe transitioning into the soft side of, uh, you know, technology from, from the aspect of programming, or maybe you are a graphic designer who wants to move into UX. So typically UX is an area that you kind of move into, you transition into from another area of interest within IT, but you are not blankly introduced to it uh, when you learn about technology. And I think it's too bad because it's just one of the pillars of technology is, is good design. So, so yeah, that's, that's on my heart to, you know, maybe one day write a book for high school students or who knows. That sounds like a good thing to put on your list of things to do. Maybe once you've shipped the internet book, you'll have a moment to plan that out and start putting some meat around those bones. Mikhail, reflecting back on your time as a practitioner in the field of UX over the last 25 years, part of which was spent, as we spoke about earlier, in mission-critical systems design, is there anything from your time spent in that context with that sort of gravity of of outcome, you know, that human life literally in the hands of the designer that you have taken and applied in your career and you think would be relevant for people working outside of mission-critical systems to consider and apply in theirs? Yeah, I think that I have learned that design is needed almost anywhere in digital solution. Well, anywhere, there is a human interface of some sorts with the technology, we could be mindful of that. There's really a, a, there's a great need for good design skills in all areas of technology. And we have kind of, so far at least, we are maybe not there as much anymore. We are moving into good design in many areas uh, now, fortunately, but there is just a vast need for good design in these areas. And it would be a pity if we as designers didn't cover that and just skipped around it because of the specificity of the, the alienness of some of these areas that we wouldn't move into them because they are not so mainstream. So, you know, humans in all sorts of specialized professions are using digital systems. They, they all need to have uh, UX designers on those teams. But I, I will say that I, I do actually see quite a bit of companies that actually are moving into having strong design teams in many areas. You know, it's normal in banking now, it's normal in, in many industrial companies have it that, you know, make, make uh, uh, components for, you know, pumps and gadgets and electrical components. And all of these actually have some sort of uh, design skill employed, maybe not intensely, but they are starting to do so. So that's one of the, one area that I really learned is that design can really be used and and applied uh, anywhere within technology and we can make a difference in in all of those areas. Yeah, I think there's some great thinking there and some challenge there perhaps for people that are considering where to take their UX career into areas that they may not have considered where design is very very much needed. 
Mikkel, it's been fascinating exploring with you today some of the unique UX-related challenges in mission-critical design and also hearing about your work on the internet book. Thank you for so generously sharing those stories and your experiences with me today. Thank you, Brendan. I hope it makes a difference to your listeners and uh, good luck with your podcast. Oh, you're most welcome. And I have no doubt that people will learn something from our time together here. Mikkel, if people want to find out more about you and your work as a practitioner, what is the best way for them to do that? Well, I would uh, go through my website, nilsmikkel.com. Maybe you can put it in your... In your Absolutely. Uh, in your, so that, that would be a good way to get in touch. Also, if you want to read about my mission critical cases there, you, you can find more info. That would be the way to go. Perfect. Thanks, Mikkel. I'll make sure that we link to those in the show notes. And to everyone that has tuned in, it's been great having you listen as well. Everything that we've covered, as I've mentioned, will be in the show notes, including any of the resources that we've spoken about. If you have enjoyed the conversation and you want to hear more great conversations like this with world-class leaders in UX design and product management, of which Mikkel is a leader of both product management and design. So you got both there in one episode. Don't forget to leave a review, subscribe, and also tell someone else about the show if you feel that they would get value from these episodes. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn on, under Brendan Jarvis. There should be no trouble finding me there. Uh, there's also a link to my LinkedIn profile at the bottom of the show notes too. Or you can visit me at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey! Yeah.